Several years ago, a pastor friend of mine told a story from his church, and it has stuck with me, and I think it might uh, just help to gather our thinking this morning as we think about the value of caring for the poor. So we have considered um, the, the Proverbs that inform our participation in 40 Acts, and we've looked at humility, first of all. We've looked at wisdom. Last week, we thought about friendship, and today we're talking about caring for the poor. So my friend said that uh, there was a particular Sunday evening, and you can tell this is a while ago because there were Sunday evening services. So uh, in a Sunday evening service time, as the crowd was gathering, uh, something rather strange happened, and that was that into this sort of upper middle class church in the, in the, on the West Coast, uh, there was a person came in through the back door and began to make his way to the front of the church. No ordinary person, though. This was a street person. And uh, as I said, this was sort of an upper, upper middle class church, and uh, he certainly caught some people's attention. And all eyes were on him as he kind of shuffled to the front of the church. And then he, rather than sit down on one of the pews, he actually sat down on the floor sat cross-legged on the floor, and by then, the, the usually chatting crowd stopped chatting, and all eyes were sort of riveted on this character who had come and sat down on their floor at the front of church. So people began to wonder, well, what should be done? And they looked, first of all, around at the ushers, and as they made contact with the ushers, the ushers very carefully did not return eye contact, and seemed not to be doing anything at all about this character who had made his way into their church. Um, and surely he should know that this is not the sort of place that uh, his sort of person should be showing up and feeling as though he's welcome there. So they wondered what would happen, and it, it was just, it became a place with kind of a nervous tension along with the silence. Finally, there was an older deacon character well-known in the church and uh, usually was the one that was outspoken at the business meetings and their public announcements need to be made. This deacon would do those. And so he came into the auditorium and he noticed this character sitting on the floor at the front of the church. And everyone breathed a sigh of relief. Certainly he would take care of the situation. And true to form, they watched him as he deliberately walked up the aisle towards the person who was sitting on the floor. This person, by now, they had examined, they had found him to be obviously a homeless person. There was a certain aroma around him that they're quite sure they didn't want to be in the auditorium. And so as this deacon made his way to the front, people were watching him um, with... Uh, you know, all eyes and all attention on him. And they were thinking, well, surely, surely this will be taken care of and we can get on with our regular church service. To their great surprise, when the deacon reached the front of the church and stooped down to acknowledge or presumably to talk to this homeless man, rather than demand that he leave their building rather than demand that he go back out the way that he had come in. The deacon, an older man, um, 
with slow and laborious movements, got down on his knees, first of all, and then went on to sit down with his legs out in front of him and sat within a foot of this character that had come in and simply looked over him and said to him, welcome, we're glad you're here. So my friend didn't tell me what happened after that, but I'm sure you have in your mind the image of this rather unlikely situation of a poor person who has descended upon a church and what happened when people tried to manage his um, presence with them. I want to talk to you about uh, this proverb. Um, It's Proverb 14, verse 31. It says this, He who oppresses the poor taunts his maker, but he who is gracious to the needy honors him. Proverbs 14, verse 31. And you will see these verses on the slide. Um, Further in Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 2, there is kind of a partner proverb that says, the rich and the poor shake hands as equals. God made them both. I like that one as well. He who oppresses the poor taunts his maker, but he who is gracious to the needy honors him. The rich and the poor shake hands as equals, God having made them both. When we talk about the rich and the poor, we, I think, caricature them. We see the rich person as one sort of a person, the poor person as another. Um, We often see that the rich person is the one who has some privilege and some prerogative, and the poor person who possibly has neither. And as we come to Proverbs this morning, and especially as we consider the poor, in a time of the co-virus epidemic and pandemic, um, we will have to think more presently about the poor than we maybe normally do. Uh, Requirements on the part of those who are poor or those who uh, caused the misfortune of a lack of material resources because of the, the pandemic, we may need to think about positioning ourselves maybe a little differently from how we have concerning the poor. Or maybe we are the poor. Maybe we need to change the caricature and say everything is different. It's a new day. It's a, a new time altogether. So as we think about the the Proverbs, the, the second proverb that we looked at um, is a proverb that really gives the theology of the, the rich and the poor or those who have and those who have not, uh, when we're told that God made us both. So where we begin in treating the matter of of poverty must be the creation story when God made us as his equals in his image. In fact, in in the Bible, we will find that there are several social issues um, whose theological um, sort of framework is formed uh, out of the creation story that God made all who were made, male and female. He made them both. The equality of men and women depends on the theology of creation. Also, the dignity of human life um, finds its mooring 
in the story of God creating us in his image. We're told not to murder, obviously, but we're not to murder because we're not to touch the image of God as it is represented or reflected in another human being. And so we we find that theology there. So today as we consider um, our view of those who have and those who have not, and however those two categories sort or merge or get close to each other will be for you to decide and maybe for you to talk about. But as we do that, um, I, I can imagine what we often have in um, like a seminar or a workshop that I lead. That as I begin to talk, there's often somebody who at the back of the room puts a hand up and says, sir, or excuse me, or hello, and they have an objection, or they have a question, and they, they kind of interrupt, and, and sometimes they interrupt soon enough that it helps me say something that would be helpful to say, um, that would give a fuller perspective than they may be expecting, or I may even be intending to provide in that particular workshop. And so in the context of Proverbs, when we talk about being rich or being poor, the hand at the back of the room says, yeah, but what about those who are poor because of their own fault? Or what about those who are poor because they don't work, because they're lazy, because, you know, why does it have to be our trouble? So caveat from the book of Proverbs Um, is a a curious little passage from Proverbs 24 that will get out of the way so that it won't clutter our minds or cumber our thinking as we go farther along. Uh, The proverb says this, One day I walked by the field of an old lazy bones. You can tell this is from the message by the language already. And then past the vineyard of a lout. They were overgrown with weeds, thick with thistles. All the fences were broken down. I took a long look and pondered what I saw. The fields preached me a sermon, and I listened. A nap here, a nap there, a day off here, a day off there. Sit back, take it easy. Do you know what comes next? Just this. You can look forward to a dirt poor life with poverty as your permanent house guest. So there it is. There is a way to be poor that is not honorable. There's a way to be poor that comes because of laziness. And as much as Proverbs talks about the rich and the poor, it talks about diligence and work. And so, word to the wise, that is the the fuller context of the book of Proverbs. But I want to bring you this morning to a great story in the Old Testament um, that I think gives us a fantastic model of how we juxtapose um, the rich and the poor, or um, wealth and poverty, or have and have not in the days in which we're living. The context for the practice that we're going to look at in the book of Ruth, that's where we're going to turn, the context is back in Leviticus in the law. And here is one of the commandments of the law. We're told in Leviticus 19, verse 9 and 10, When you harvest your land, don't harvest right to the edges of your field or gather the gleanings from the harvest. Don't strip your vineyard bare or go back and pick up the fallen grapes. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. 
I am God, your God. You might have noticed um, various things to do with the, the Jewish culture that uh, even today we kind of notice and remark on. Uh, one of them is the, the uh, habit of the Orthodox Jew in particular not to cut the corners of his beard or the corners of his head. Um, the reason for that is this Leviticus passage. Um, they were told not to, to harvest the corners of the field. And so in one way to remember that and to practice that, there is the uh, uncornered uh, beard of the Orthodox Jew or the practicing Jew and the uh, uncornered haircut with all kinds of rabbis giving them how-tos about um, the appropriate haircutting of beards and, and haircuts. But that's where that comes from. Um, it comes from Leviticus chapter 19. And Leviticus chapter 19 is um, God's societal means for the care of those who are poor, for the care of those who are the foreigners. So in an, an agrarian situation normally where people have land and they are able to grow crops on that land, there will come those into the village, into the, the area who are either poor or they are poor because of their having been foreigners someplace else and they've arrived into the land of Israel. And so one of the provisions that God makes for them is that when there's the harvest time that comes, uh, those who, who harvest the, the crops should allow the poor and the foreigners to glean from the harvest. They're able to glean because the harvesters, harvesters are just a little bit careless in being sure that they harvest all of the crop that is ready to come. So it's a lovely thing. And as we think about it, um, I, I'm drawn to a great example of that, which is the story of Ruth and the story of Ruth and a love story with Boaz. I'm going to read you uh, a couple of chapters of, of Ruth. You have nothing else to do today but sit here and listen to me, so here we go. Um, and the background is like this. The story of Ruth begins as a lovely story. It begins with a husband and a wife whose names are Elimelech and Naomi. And Elimelech and Naomi have the idyllic life. They live in Bethlehem, Judah. Elimelech's name literally means, my God is king. And Naomi's name literally means pleasant one. So my God is king and pleasant one live in Bethlehem, Judah, the house of bread and praise. And they have two boys. And they call their boys Malin and Chilean. And all of a sudden, there's kind of a coldness that settles into the story because those names aren't like the others that we've just noticed. Malin and Chilean mean sickly and pining. So imagining calling your two boys, you, my God is king, and Naomi, calling your sons to supper and say, hey, pining, hey, sickly, come on for dinner. Well, the problem was they weren't able to call them readily for dinner because there came a famine in the land, and these boys were born into the famine, and so the names that they were given were appropriate because Bethlehem was in a famine. 
Elimelech and Naomi thought about all of this, and Elimelech made a decision. He made the decision to take Naomi and their two boys to the land of Moab. Now, Moab was not Israel, and if we know our history from the Old Testament about Israel, all of the promises that God had for Israel belonged in the land. Uh, there would be blessing for them in the land. There would be uh, heritage for them, an inheritance in the land. And so when Limelech and Naomi left Bethlehem, Judah, and went to Moab, they were denying their heritage, their inheritance, and their history. And they must have known that this is not what God wanted for them. However, they headed to Moab, and the story gets only worse because their two boys, who take Moabite women as, as wives, Orpah and Ruth, the two boys die in Moab, and the two widows are left with Elimelech and Naomi, except not even with Elimelech because Elimelech died. My God is king who made a bad choice, ended up losing his life, his two sons also losing their lives, leaving um, a mom and a wife with no family, but two daughters-in-law. And then there's a very sad comment that says, the Lord visited Bethlehem Judah with bread. And so God answered the call of Israel to supply them with water and crops, and it began to thrive again. And at that point, Naomi, I, I guess, came to herself and she said, well, wh what am I doing here in Moab? Why don't I just, I'll just go home? And maybe there's somebody there that will remember me. Maybe there's someone there that will take me and I don't know. But she said to Orpah and Ruth, um, so I'm going back to Israel, but that's not where you belong. You stay here. And they wept and they said, no, we won't, we won't let you go without us. And um, finally, Ruth alone prevailed and she said, no, no, no. Wherever you go, I will go. Whoever your people are, they're my people. Whoever your gods are, they're my gods. Don't tell me to leave you. And so against her counsel, um, Naomi allowed Ruth to come back home with her to Bethlehem. And when they arrive, um, the people of Bethlehem see them coming, and they look out maybe over the fields, and they think they recognize this one figure. And there's maybe one person who says, is, is this Naomi? And Naomi said something very sad. She said, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Mara means bitter. Her life had taken an awful turn. That which began in an idyllic Bethlehem setting um, turned into a tragedy of, of many aspects. Now she's back in Bethlehem with her daughter-in-law, Ruth. Well, the story takes a lovely turn, and I'm going to catch us up on that um, in Ruth chapter 2. You might want to follow along in your Bible or just listen to this as I tell you the story. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. So there's a little editorial comment. He was a man of standing. 
we're wanting to learn about people of standing as opposed to those maybe who are not people of standing. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, Whose young woman is that? You can read between the lines. The foreman replied, She is the Moabitess who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, Please let me glean and gather some among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She went into the field and has worked steadily from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I told the men not to touch you. And whenever you're thirsty, to go and get a drink from the water jars for you. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She exclaimed, my, my, my Lord, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a stranger? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you didn't know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You've given me comfort and have spoken kindly to your servant, though I don't have the standing of one of your servant girls. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip in, in the wine vinegar. When she sat down and the harvesters came, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. Rather, pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up. Don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the, the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. She gathered it back to town, carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working with today. The, man, the name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it'll be good for you, my daughter, to go with his girls, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. 
So Ruth stayed close to the servant girls of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Well, that's not the end of the story, so hang on. Here it goes. One day Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you'll be well provided for? Is not Boaz, remember that Boaz, that kind man? That's not in the text. With whose servant girls you have been, who, uh, is he not a kinsman of ours? Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know that you're there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he's lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. Now, there's a lot of cultural information you should have about that. What you did was not brash. What you did was altogether proper. But um, you'll have to go and do the research to be sure about that. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man, and he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. I guess so. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. Now, that's a very important part of the story and would be an interesting little topical study for you. What does that mean? Um, so in the provision of the Society of Israel, um, when someone died, there was often someone after that or after that who would be responsible to look after the widow. Uh, and, and that's the case with, with Boaz. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men. There's some great news, right? There are younger men, better looking men, but there's Boaz. He's a nice guy. You've not chased after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you're a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to redeem, good, let him redeem. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized, and he said, Don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, Bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and put it on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled. Well, without reading the next chapter, it continues to go well. Boaz finds the one who is a nearer relative and says, here's the deal. Um, Ruth is here. You have the first claim on the inheritance of Elimelech and the hand of Ruth. 
And the person says, oh, well, let me think about this. And apparently he went and talked to a lawyer and an accountant or something and said, came back and said, you know what, I would, but apparently it would, it would be a conflict with my already my, my, my finances, my family, my, all that stuff. So by all means, you can take up the responsibility of the kinsman redeemer. So Boaz returns and he marries Ruth and they get to be part of the lineage of the Lord Jesus, uh, as well as round out a lovely, lovely love story. Well, when we think about that story of the provision that Boaz made for Ruth, um, we, we have a couple of people, one of whom um, has means. Uh, he's a man of standing just by the text itself. And one who is a foreigner. Um, she has no standing. And she has no resources. And we have a sad mother-in-law in the background. And we have God caring for all of them and um, playing into the drama in, in a lovely, lovely way. So when we think about the, uh, the way that Boaz and Ruth relate to each other, maybe they bring us to think about those two categories. Um, and particularly in the days of this, this virus, um, think about who they are, whether they would have been called a person of standing or not before, and who they are who are needy, whether they were thought before to have been persons in need. Um, and, and let Boaz and, and Ruth caricature those two kinds of people. And maybe you were one before, but now you find yourself as the other, strangely speaking. So as you sort through what your behavior can be um, as a Boaz or as a Ruth, what lessons do we learn from these two? And, and note, first of all, that the predicament in which Ruth found herself was of no um, result of things that she had done. She was the victim of circumstances in, in a pure, pure way. She was um, a Moabite young woman minding her own business when this family from Bethlehem rode into town and one of the sons fell madly in love with her and married her and she was swept up into their household and you know they probably were a family of, of some means. And she found herself then widowed found herself with a loss of family income because Limelech is gone, and Limelech has already given away his inheritance by, by leaving the land. And now she's faced with the predicament that her mother-in-law, whom she loves dearly, is going to leave town and head back to Bethlehem. And so I'm sure Ruth had many sleepless nights of anguish and wondering what she should do. And then she, she knew that she was bound to her mother-in-law, loved her dearly, and said, I, I'm coming with you. And as they came back to Bethlehem, Ruth must have watched with some horror as the people of Bethlehem saw that Naomi was returning, and Naomi was not the person who left. And so Naomi and Ruth have to make their home in Bethlehem, but I don't know that they have anywhere to return to. And Ruth is left 
only to the social provisions of the community. Um, there is nothing other that she can turn to than the law of gleaning. And she does what the, the Bible tells us and what Naomi presumably has instructed her about as she has told uh, Ruth about the ways of Israel. And so Ruth um, puts away her dignity and pride and she goes and she uncovers the feet of this man and lies down at his feet. She goes out into the fields and in the dusty aftermath of the harvesters passing by, uh, she gleans so that there can be some sustenance for her and for her mother-in-law. People today maybe would never have imagined they would have ended up where they have now. And so if we by any chance happen to be the Boazes, we have a great responsibility and opportunity. As we think about all of this, it, it seems to me that, again, there are maybe just three things that um, we could eke from the story that would instruct us, whether we are Boaz or Ruth. Uh, whether you are Boaz or Ruth, three ways to behave, I think, are really clear. First of all, behave respectfully. Um, several years ago, as we were in, in uh, the area of Papen Danforth, there, there were many people begging on the street. Um, maybe they were panhandling, maybe they were playing a guitar with a case open, whatever it was. But I remember, I think it started one morning as I walked past, and I stopped and talked to one of the fellows that was there. And he, he said, thank you for stopping. And I said, well, I didn't even give you any money yet. And he said, no, no, no. You stopped and you acknowledged me. And I said, what do you mean? He said, we're invisible. We're invisible to everybody that walks past here. Um, people just don't notice us. And so we're not persons. And I've thought about that many times, that there's the loss of personhood that comes from being disadvantaged in some way or another. And so as we watch Boaz and Ruth, I think Boaz uh, protects the dignity of Ruth. Several times you would have heard that in the story, right? Where he told his men not to bother her, not to harm her. I mean, honestly, she must have been a beautiful young woman. His eyes were drawn to her. The eyes of the young men were drawn to her. But he told them to, to make sure that she was taken care of. And then she told her, don't go to some other field because they may not treat you well there either. So just stay with my, my girls. Um, glean with my girls and I'll watch out for you. He was being protective of her dignity. She was also protective of Boaz's decorum, right? She's, she came when it was dark and she left when it was dark because there is a beautiful young woman I may be reading something into this, but doesn't sound like Boaz is a, you know, a great catch. But um, rather than allow Boaz to have the mocking words or glances, she comes and goes without being noticed. She, she cares about his decorum. Boy, I think that's an important part of all of this. And remember the theology that began this, that the Lord made them all, the rich and the poor, the Lord made them both. Um, we're on equal footing. No matter what has happened, no matter what the circumstances are that have brought us to where we are, what standing we have in life, 
we began at the same place. Uh, it is simply the luck of the draw or um, the result of genetic processes or however you want to say this, that you were born where you are and not in a little village in some third world country where perhaps you don't have even the necessities of life. You're lucky that you were born here. So, so let's get that straight. Many people are not responsible for the conditions in which they find themselves. Again, caveat, if you don't work, you don't eat. If you could work and make money, you should. Don't be a jerk. Don't be lazy. There you go. Okay, hands up. Put them down again. Or we're good. Whether you're Boaz or Ruth, behave respectfully. Secondly, behave graciously. Um, what do you have at your disposal um, that, that you can bring to, to a Ruth? So Boaz said to his men, look, um, I, I know that the law provides for her to glean um, at, at the end of the, the, the harvesting, but pull out some of the stalks and give them to her. Now that seems to have been really surprising because when she goes home and shows that to Naomi, Naomi says, wow, he must really like you or something like that. But what did Boaz do? He, he, was, he found ways to be gracious. And there should not be um, great difficulty today to find ways to be as gracious as we possibly can. Whatever you have in your pocket, you know, maybe you can hand it over. Whatever you can do that is just an expression of being a gracious person to someone whose human dignity you already um, have have paid attention to and respected. Um, be gracious. Um, Ruth was discreet in presenting her needs. Um, she she didn't march right up and say, hey, do you know who I am? Um, you've got this world's goods. I want some of them. I deserve some of them. Um, she She very discreetly... Um, came along and presented herself to Boaz. He had to ask who she was. Not she. She wasn't standing there looking for a handout or with her hand out. Not that there would be anything wrong with that. But the person that she was, the character that she had, um, cared about the Boaz. And so, if if we are in a condition in which we need to ask for some help. Um, be respectful of the person that you're asking that help from. Be gracious in the way that you talk to that person. If, if someone grants you some um, benefit, don't just say, well, you know, I had it coming or you owed me that. Be gracious and say what, what you have done was gracious. I'm sure things are hard for you as well. And thank you for, for being kind and for thinking of me. The third thing is that um, both Boaz and Ruth behaved faithfully. There was a, a faith set of values that was in behind the way that they treated each other. Boaz knew what his responsibilities were according to the law, and he lived up to those responsibilities. 
He knew that he had a place to take in society as a kinsman redeemer. And even though there was someone else who was closer, um, he deferred to that person as he properly should, but then also stepped up when it was his responsibility because he knew what the requirements of the law were for him. Ruth um, understood Naomi and Naomi's faith and Naomi's traditions. And she stepped into those traditions, and undoubtedly they were different from the marriage traditions of, of Moab. But she followed them. She followed the, the covenant provisions, and, um, and even some of the language of covenant seeps its way into this narrative. As Boaz says, you know, may the Lord do so to me if I don't, or may you be blessed even more as. Um, and we, so, we see that in all of this, um, the... The provision of the faith tradition and the religious tradition of Israel um, did lovely things in the middle of some dire circumstances, gave someone who was a person of standing the opportunity to be graceful and gracious, gave someone without standing the opportunity to have dignity and to be ministered to. And at the end of it, the two parties to this whole deal became lovers, husbands, and wife, and they become part of God's great story as it moves on through history. Guy walks into a church, walks up to the front, smells bad, sits down instead of even sitting at a pew. Where did he come from? Who knows where he came from? What was it like before? I don't know. I remember sitting at uh, on an out-of-the-cold dinner at Calvary Church in Toronto with a character that he had lots to say. He, he, he lived in one of the tent cities in the Don Valley. And we were sitting one night, and he was devouring his food. I said, so tell me about you. The story he told was amazing. He was a McGill professor um, for whom things went wrong and for whom mental illness played havoc, and he ended up um, in dire circumstances. Um, he didn't look like a professor any longer. He certainly talked like one. But the point was that we had the chance to talk, and I needed to quickly respect him, never mind that he had been a McGill professor, because we are of the same standing, the same maker, put us both together. And so what do we learn from Boaz and Ruth? Um, we learn a lovely story of the way a society can be arranged to help people to help one another, all the while respecting who one another is. Let's practice that as much as we can. God bless.